This is Life with Alcohol and Drugs, a podcast from the charity Scottish Families Affected by Alcohol and Drugs. In this episode, we are joined with Richard Watson from Scottish Families, who shares his recovery journey for Recovery Month. Hi, we're here for September, being Recovery Month, and I'm joined with Titch, who just recently joined Scottish Families Fit by Alcohol and Drugs. Do you want to introduce yourself and what your role is with us? Sure. Um, so, yeah, my name's uh, Richard Watson, but many people in recovery know me as Titch and all my friends as well, and I hope, I hope people out with recovery hear this so yes hello <laughs> um yeah i joined scottish families just over three months ago and my job title is connecting families development officer yeah it's great to be here thank you very much rebecca yeah it's connecting families development officer comes with a lot of things a lot of exciting things so so very good to have you here so with it being recovery month you know we felt it was proper that we did a podcast where we would talk about recovery and to highlight recovery journeys and you very kindly agreed to be here and to share your own journey and to really just talk us through your own experiences and your experiences with sort of for example your family and the people that were able to support you and and things like that along the way. We can just really start by sort of just asking about your journey and you can totally take it from there because journey is a very good word to use because I can imagine it's full of a lot of detail. Sure. Uh, thanks. Um, yeah, so I mean, my, my whole journey is probably too bad. I'm, I'm fortunate I'm five years in recovery. So during those five years, I've been to a lot of recovery meetings and I've shared my story a lot of times, which has been uh, made me quite comfortable with discussing it. Um, I'm very comfortable with some of the some of the behaviours and the things that I did in the past that I no longer do. So therefore, you know, I, I, there's very little that holds much weight over me that I'm ashamed to talk about anymore. Do you know, there was shame is definitely one of the things that was a barrier to getting well again. So I think a part of my own recovery is to make sure that I share that with people that I share that actually I had to forgive myself and that I shouldn't carry shame. Carrying all that doesn't help me, doesn't help my loved ones, doesn't help my kids. So I just, I'm, I'm really lucky that five years down the line, I'm really getting close to being um, the person that I, I always knew I was. And I think that was one of my main things. I, you know, I was brought up in Edinburgh and I knew that and I had a lovely you know, I had a lovely mum, relationship with my mum in particular, and, and the rest of my, my wider family. Yeah, and I, it was a good upbringing. I was, I guess I was a kind of a, a good wee boy, you know. And then as I got into teenage years, I did what normal teenagers do and started experimenting a little bit with drinking drugs. And that was not really problematic too badly at the time. And then I think then we found out my mum was diagnosed with cancer and around about that time it just came at that kind of crucial time in my teens where rather than whilst everyone else was experimenting and having fun I quite quickly realised I could use cannabis and alcohol to make me feel better and the school recognised that and I got a bit of support um, but 
actually what happened was at that age, you know, I, I remember going and getting some therapy and and the therapist sort of talking about, you know, things that, that were really adult, you know, at that age, young teenage years, talking, you know, and then going away and reading about the ego at 15. It was quite a lot you'd have taken. And of course, at that age, I was taking loads of information in any way. I was really seeking out life as you do at that age. So I got a bit of support around that age. It, it didn't make much of a difference. All that really happened was I just continued to turn to alcohol and drugs as my mum's illness progressed. My my reliance on that as a, as a support, as a crutch increased. And quite young, I would say I was 18 when I sort of identified myself as alcoholic. Now, my dad had was a chronic alcoholic, what I would call a chronic alcoholic, that in the sense that for big parts of my childhood, I his heavy drinking dominated everything. Just broke up the family home when I was five. And actually, it's just recently in being a part of Scottish families that as I'm taught, as so much of my work, or all my work is, is all focused on supporting families, that I've started to really maybe explore a little bit more about that relationship and the impact it had on me. So, yeah, I mean, I, I always knew being the, the child of an alcoholic had its part in my journey. Um, but I also recognised that just the misfortune of life and losing a parent to cancer, because my mum died when I was 18 and... It's funny, actually, sometimes I, I stop and think, was it 18 or was it 19? Because I, so many periods of my life around then, I just are a big muddle. They're not clear. I couldn't tell you months from months. It's literally years because, I mean, I used to get up in the morning and smoke bongs, like like cannabis pipes, hash pipes, and and I'd smoke all day and and or I would drink all day. So... You know, smoking. If I would be smoking, if I had to get on and do things, and if I if I was had a free lane, I'd be able to drink if there wasn't any adults. And and I guess that was one of the problems that that actually after my mum had died, I'd, there wasn't a lot of adults around in my life that that had enough power over me to really interject and 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 help me sort of manage my behaviour. And quite quickly, I kind of went from drinking. You know, I got into ecstasy and speed and acid around the same time. And again, what became was started off as fun quickly became, you know, I, I would literally take ecstasy like Prozac. So if I was feeling a bit down, I would take half an ecstasy pill because it would make me feel better. And I mean, it's, it was that simple. It made me feel better. I felt crap. Take this. I feel better, even though I knew that I'd come down and I would feel worse. I mean, I. I uh, to be honest, I, I stopped taking speed quite quickly because the depression that came with the come downs around that was so brutal that I just couldn't, I just realised I couldn't do it. I mean, I took my mum's, I used to uh, steal my mum's Oromorph and our, our other morphine, uh, you know, other opiate based tablets as well. But I was, you know, really quite young. And again, I was, I realised, you know, at that time, I thought people got addicted to specific substances. And I thought heroin was a really addictive substance. I know that. I've heard that in school. And I got my mum's friend. We, we poured that all down the toilet. Loads of diazepam as well. Uh, again, it's funny. I, I remember looking back on that on that exercise of pouring all those all the all my mum's drugs down the toilet and laughing with my friends, going, "God, I wish I, I wouldn't have done that now," you know. And I probably sold them or or gubbed them all. But yeah, so that was a big thing. My mum dying. The impact of that had a real. Was it was probably the start meant my journey started off from a, a kind of difficult place, and I think that's so common with people in recovery. 
quite uh, quite often people, not exclusively, but quite often people have had a painful experience that, that they've, they've taken drugs or alcohol to feel, make them feel better. So yeah, so that was my start. I went through the rest of my life just doing my best. I I, hel- I, I always worked and I guess that was a real saving grace for me that um, I had a bit of structure around me, but I would go straight to the pub every day after work. But at least I was still going to work and I lost loads of jobs because I stank of booze in the morning and I lost loads, loads of jobs because I was unreliable or I lost loads of jobs for not for stealing. Like I say, I, had, I was brought up and I had pretty good. Um, I did have a good moral compass, as I'm sure. Actually, I think most people do. I genuinely I, I love this that start of Anne Frank's diary that all you know all people are inherently good. And, and I really believe that I think we are all good people and, and I don't necessarily I think that's a lot to do with the media that we've that I actually took on some of that. Well, I must be doing something wrong. There must be something bad. You know, I, I think I, I honestly I believe I learned a lot of guilt. So anyway, I, I did. I was lucky that I had work to keep me structured, um, and I got through most of my life just about surviving. But I lost a lot of relationships, and I caused a lot of damage, and I upset a lot of people because of, you know, every night being drunk was an opportunity for me to have said something stupid or. You know, I, I, I know I, lo- I, lo- I had a very wicked tongue at times when I was drunk. So, and that's all really regrettable. But, you know, again, you know, I just didn't see it at the time. And then you'd wake up feeling terrible. And this was a pattern that, that became, I, I would do something that didn't sit well with me. And I'd wake up the next morning feeling terrible about it. And I hate living with that feeling in myself. So it was easier to drink and take drugs again. So, yeah, that was my, my that was a, the big part of my journey was this, cycle of damaging people, damaging relationships, damaging myself. And occasionally, you know, I would go and get lots of I would go and seek help. I would go to the doctors and sometimes I would get tablets or I would go and get some counselling. I mean when I could, um it wasn't it wasn't easy. I had another sort of traumatic experience through my in my teenage years as well that ended up in a court case. And that at the end of that court case, which was terrible, and there's a lot to say, I mean years later and once I started getting into recovery and I was chatting to somebody about a journey of abuse that I'd been through that ended up in this court case, they said you've been let down at every step of the way. And it was true when you go to all the opportunities for professionals to have stepped in and said, how are you doing? And just stop and ask, are you coping OK? Are you doing well? And then to divert you to some support, like meaningful support. Too often, I think people go through horrible traumatic experiences and people will say how are you doing but there's just not nothing there to actually back that up anyway so I went through all this stuff I, I kind of recognized that all that, that difficult court case landed me moving to Glasgow and it gave me a bit of a fresh start and that was in 2000 so um my, I kind of felt like my life had began again and fortunately at just point I still considered myself an alcoholic I knew I had a problem I didn't really know how to stop it I always thought Maybe if I, I get a better job, if I can start. But this time as well, my debts had, had, were sort of chasing me around the place as well. If I can clear my debts. I think a big thing about me was always seeking a loving relationship. And um, I'm sure that I'm not unique there either. I kept on searching. If, I, if this happens, then I'll get well. I'll stop drinking. I'll stop doing that. Now, I keep talking about drinking. And that's because I genuinely, all these over... Up until I was 39, I kept on seeking help for my alcoholism. I'd go to the community addictions team and I'd keep getting told, oh, come take a drinks diary. 
if you take a drinks diary for long enough and you show us this commitment and we can show us that you're reducing and you're trying to help yourself, then we'll look at getting you some counselling. And I was like, well, I know I need counselling. So if you get me the support I need to deal with my emotions then and my thoughts and my feelings, then I think I would, I thought I would stop. But anyway, that was just what was offered to me at the time and it never worked. So that this pattern of seeking help and not and it not suiting my needs that went on for several years and again uh, one of the big things in my journey was that I I remember I, I met I met the mother of my kids and she's a lovely woman and we got on really well and I thought we, and we talked about having children fairly early in our relationship and and I thought if I have kids I'll I'll become responsible once I become responsible and I thought I'm not going to end up like my dad and if I do that then that'll sort my drinking out unfortunately so I do I've got two wonderful kids now but unfortunately I think for their mum it was really hard because I treated that her first pregnancy as my last chance to drink before life got serious and then when they were born every celebration was another excuse to drink so I was one of these parents who at the kids party had a bottle of beer open you know um, and I'm not criticising anyone for doing that people do what they want but Looking back on it now, I just used any celebration, as I always had done. Any celebration was an excuse to drink. It wasn't actually, whether it was going to exhibition openings or going to somebody's, any event just became around. And that's actually, I think that's a lot to do with our culture in Scotland as well, um, and in work as well. Bars and work, bars and parliaments, bars and, you know, there's just alcohol is, we always associate it with celebration and that's because it's an industry and and just like the cards industry it's a way of making you know gift cards for every occasion it's a drink for every occasion as well so you know and you know again that's probably a part for giving myself i understand that there's a lot of pressure out there on 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 people so my journey carried on you know having two children i end up having two kids back to back pretty much and it was a stressful time and unfortunately my only way of coping with stressful situations was to to drink or to take drugs and I probably had a good period around then where I found a, a way of coping of just drinking just enough to maintain work to be responsible with the kids to support um, their mum it felt to me like I was doing the best I could and it was sufficient but actually I don't I think she was particularly unhappy and uh, quite quickly the relationship broke down so and in a shorter time scale than, than my than when my mum and dad split up so it was one of these really frustrating things for me that I always I guess I always compared myself to my dad and I didn't want to be like him I wanted to do a better job than him and uh, that, so that was a real so that that actually gave me a lot of fight I ended up going and getting a detox not that long after in fact so that I'll take you back actually it was I actually got my first detox my, my only detox actually with NHS before I met the, the kid's mum so I'd really had been trying prior to that to, to get well and the big thing about the detox and the NHS was they spent they did a great job and I got sober you know <clears throat> they gave me the tablets to keep me sober but there was very little aftercare and very little ongoing support so I just went out to exact back to the same house back to the same relationships back to the exact same situation that had, so nothing my world hadn't changed all had happened was I'd been given a safety talk from alcohol you know 
after I split up with her mum, I, I kept on trying and I went and got lots of sessions of CBT back with the community addictions team. And I just had, I just kept on trying and I'd get periods of sobriety, but again into more another relationship. And when that one broke down, or it felt like it was breaking down because of my behaviour under the influence, that was my final straw and I picked up a helpline and, and someone recommended a rehab. And, you know, at the time, We'd just been doing the kitchen up and had some money put aside for that and we had you know there was it actually just all of a sudden made sense and um applied for rehab so um and it was expensive you know i'd actually I, I did at the same time i obviously phoned my doctor and they said oh come and see me i'll give you an appointment next week uh, and i think i can't remember what the community addictions team said i, I think they offered a drop-in to be fair but i also had had a bad experience and i just didn't i couldn't imagine why it would be different this time from my previous experiences so when I spoke to the person in the helpline and it was somebody in recovery it was somebody that was had recovered and I'd never had that before and any time that I'd engaged with services I'd never actually met anyone who'd recovered so that made a big difference I really felt that the person on the end of that helpline understood and they shared back a little bit about their journey and actually it gave me that little bit of hope for the first time and I thought I need to do this it just felt right off I went to to the rehab um, and, it, and it cost money and that was a shame but it was an investment in myself I saw at the time. So <clears throat> when I got to, to the rehab um, I didn't know what I was walking into and it was a found out once I got there and once we paid the money and um, that it was a 12-step rehab and I was there for, we could only afford two weeks and that was already by scrambling and asking family and friends to help money was going on credit cards money going and then once I actually got in there straight away, I realised two weeks was nowhere near enough. And it was a 12-step rehab. They, they, well, it wasn't strictly a 12-step rehab, but they, that's kind of the model that they, and I didn't really understand what that was. I'd been to an AA meeting once before and I'd seen um, the word God on a scroll and I thought, oh, this isn't for me because I'd had such an issue historically with that. And so I just I probably wouldn't have gone if I'd known that. But once I was there and someone actually explained it to me a little bit better. And, you know, to be honest, I was there and I was so desperate. I had that. Sometimes people call it the gift of desperation. You know, at this point, I've got my kids to think about. So although I didn't manage that point, having kids alone hadn't got me sober, it became quite a, a, a another factor that really did help me with my sort of personal motivation to, to give this another go. And then that rehab was great. All the staff were all lived experience. They all, everywhere you went, I mean, I, I think with the exception of one person in that rehab who was, who was a great guy and had and had family experience and had loads of experience, it, um, I don't think he had personal, but you know, that's a really high ratio. So to be surrounded by people who had all recovered was really inspirational. And, you know, they were you were able to ask them any question and trust that their answer was going to be a, you know, a solid one from a place of honesty and a place of experience rather than from textbook, you know. So um, I was there for 28 days in the end. In that, I got my first opportunity to actually cry um, about my mum, you know, and that was, and, and I think grief was just such a big part of my story and it's such a big part of so many people's story. And I'd pushed all those emotions so deeply down, I, I just didn't really like looking at it. So it was great to have that opportunity to 
get that release. And I still don't think I do it very well. I still think I've pushed down my emotions, but I'm much better at it. it. It just gave me that safe place to start going, actually, you know, you need help, proper help, you know. And and that's my big thing with people who are trying to overcome addictions is that you need to talk stuff through. That's the main thing you need to really, you need to go and get help and you need other people to help you. You can't do it alone. And I, I got that. And unfortunately, it cost me a lot of money, but it was worth it. When I was there as well, I got, you know, my key worker sort of, I remember that time thinking, oh, I'll, I, I smoke dope every day. I thought I'll never be able to stop smoking dope. I could probably kick the drink and the, the hard drugs. But, and also at that point, I went in thinking I had an alcohol problem and it was only in there that I realised that I used a substance every single day in my life. Because I've never, I've been on TV for legalising cannabis. I never saw that as a problem. Although my behaviour around always making sure I had a joint available, like like cancelling holidays in case I couldn't get a smoke when I was there, like really extreme stuff. Going and knocking people's doors in the middle of the night to get a joint before bed because I thought I couldn't sleep if I didn't have a joint. So yeah, although, so I never really, I think I really convinced myself that cannabis wasn't a problem and actually it was. So in that rehab, I, I got to sort of identify myself actually as, as an addict at the time, you know, and stigma around that word. But it was my first time that I realised it wasn't just drink or drugs. And actually it wasn't, even then it wasn't either the drink or the drugs that the problem. It was all the painful things that was the problem. They were the things that were causing me harm. So I, I had a really great experience from then on. I went, I was really lucky. Unfortunately, my relationship didn't work out and I ended up staying on a friend's sofa for a long time. I was unemployed and that gave me the opportunity to go to lots and lots of meetings and it was great. I ended up doing a lot of fellowship meetings and I was really lucky because I was in Glasgow. I was spoilt for choice and I tried them all and I tried locally and further away. I tried smart. I tried a little bit of everything to see what suited me and and actually it was really great. And even though I still had some issues around some of the stuff around the 12 steps, I, I just did what I was told for the first time and it really, you know, it took me a wee while, but uh, yeah, uh, straight away I felt like I was I was welcome and it was great every day being able to hear other people on the same journey as me and hearing every day from people that we had great lives now and great hope. And it's a shame that so many of those people are hidden from our society because there's so many great stories of recovery out there that are in these in these in these fellowships. And I guess from then on, by doing that and putting my recovery first, I was lucky. I just I focused on that. I had a, I did this thing, you know, they talk about this aftercare plan that you often get. And I, and I actually did it. And, I, and when I speak to people that I try and support now, so few people do it. And if they don't do it, they don't write down what they're doing every day and fill up their time. Because at the start of our recovery journey for me, it was time was against me. And if I had time on my own, I got stuck in my head again and I started to worry and I hadn't started to really master some of those tools I'd given, especially meditation. It took me a long time to understand the power of meditation and be able to slow myself down, slow my thinking down. Yeah, it was good. I, I just really did throw myself into into my recovery and it gave me, and I always had other things. I was at this time, then I started picking off little bits and pieces of debt and my housing problem and in my relationships. And I started going around trying to try to make up for some of the harms I'd done and, and it was great you know because by focusing on my recovery first and foremost and really doing that thing that one of the best things that you get from 12-step fellowships is this idea of keeping it in the day you know just a day at a time and by doing that before I knew it I was getting great voluntary opportunities I got some training with Northwest Recovery Communities they put me in a COSCA course 
Then I started volunteering with the job centre and that then led me on to a job. And before I got to that point, I also got, or around about that time, I also engaged with Elevate again in Glasgow and they started giving me some employability support. So, you know, from a CV to interview training. So all of a sudden I was finding then that my life was getting pretty busy between volunteering and the good thing was the job centre supported all that volunteering as well as long as I was dead honest. And that was the thing. I started just trying to be as honest as I could with everybody. And that was really a, a major shift because my life had had a lot of little, like lots of little white lies, you know, nothing really bad or brutal, but it was a kind of culture shift that needed to happen in me. So yeah, the, getting all that employability support, having all that stuff. And, the, and then it led to me having a job and I got a job with the Department of Work and Pensions um, was actually the title was drug and alcohol community partner um, and it was quite a unique role and it was only for a year and my job was effectively to go in and train staff about what addiction and recovery was and that was a lovely job I really loved it because all I had to go and do was tell them a story about like what I have done here and talked about different recovery models and the options that might be in, in a, around about their nearest job centres for, for the local staff and it was really great and I got to do some some work try to help set up a group um, which is still running today. I'm really proud of the the, the work we all did together in that. Yeah, so yeah, my, my, my journey kind of sped up quite quickly. Before I knew it, I was getting to a little bit less meetings because, you know, my kids were back in my life. I'd always looked after my kids 50-50 um, with their mum. So um, as soon as I got myself a house again, the kids were back fully with me. And, and yeah, it was all of a sudden my life was really busy. And I guess this is this thing that you hear about recovery capital or social capital or all these things where actually uh, my self-esteem was coming back my my self-belief was coming back I was getting new education so I was my life was becoming quite full yeah and it was great and before I knew it I was applying for other jobs and one of the you know right at the end of that first year of the community partners I applied for Scottish families and I'd always admired Scottish families and I'd realized as well you know there's my own children, I also went to like Love and Light for a while with the kids and it was really good to sort of see that, that whilst I was, it gave me a place to go on a, on a weekend where my kids were entertained and I was still getting to do some recovery, which was really, really great for me. And the kids were making, you know, having a laugh and making new friends. My, but my kids have been a really important part of my journey and I, I remember really clearly the way they would jump in, my, in the early recovery, if I owned a, opened a can of Coke and they'd run through it, check it wasn't a beer. And I realised that I had had, at their very young age, I think they were only three or four at the time, and they were young, but they'd obviously been impacted. And, or we walked past one of the local pubs and where I lived in Glasgow, and they would just say, Dad, you don't go there anymore. It was just little things that you just realised. Because I used to pick them up from school and take them to the park and I would be sitting in the park going, God, let's get out here as quickly as possible and hope it was like 10 minutes. Rather, they would want to be there for an hour and I was like, 10 minutes and then we'd be in the pub for an hour, do you know? Um, I kept drawing in pens and pencils for the kids to be entertained behind the bar, you know? Um, so it, my, my addictions definitely impacted on my children. So it was really lovely to start seeing them recognising that. And they've been a part. They've been with me, so I'd, I was aware of Scottish families. I knew that my children probably may need some support, but actually, do you know, I think you know we've got a really healthy relationship now, and yeah, it's really good. And and of course, my my career's now landed me with Scottish families, and 
I'm so grateful to to be working with this organization and my job is just it started off really well and it's actually letting me really explore some of my stuff again as well I feel really supported and because a lot of what we talk about in the Connecting Families team and across the organization is that families have to look after themselves first and that's something that I'm starting to learn about myself as well and I'm getting really well supported for doing that that yeah I, I want to be there to support families and for them to support their loved ones so it's a really lovely culture and it's been a really good journey do you know um, and I'm still passionate about recovery I've started to I still get involved wherever I can. Thank you for being so honest because I think all the way through that obviously I've stayed quiet this whole time but that's because I felt like I had to stay quiet. A lot of things you said made me sad or made me smile, made me laugh at times as well. It's um, yeah, it's a very honest, very raw experience. I think one thing that really I sort of I felt with you is that came from it is you sort of learned to love yourself and that was a big change wasn't it because we spend a lot of time as humans trying to please other people and trying to look after the people around us and we forget about ourselves and I think that happens a lot as well with people who are trying to get into recovery you know they're not really putting themselves first they're still sort of saying I need to get recovered for insert someone else's name you know they don't ever say it's for me they always say I want to do it for my mum I want to do it for this so you know I think that's so important that you do put yourself first but it is so hard to do it um, it can be quite difficult you might feel selfish about it you know and you started when you said you know you felt all this shame and you kind of think where did that come from what made you think of that in your head and you've mentioned the media but there is that like it's stigma isn't it because everything concerning alcohol, drugs, addiction, all of those things, there's always a very dark stigma around it. Separation, I guess, of people. Like if people have got an alcohol or drug problem, you know, they're very much separate from what society sees and that in itself goes on to you as a person and it makes you think completely different. So on that, you made me think uh, a good way to sum up about how the problem we have in our society around stigma is that my local pub was great but the landlady was really against drugs. So like, there were some pubs in my local area that drugs were part and parcel with the pub culture there. But this one particular pub I'd go to, I wouldn't go and do coke in the toilets there because I, I kind of respected the landlady. I, obviously, I did it now and again, and probably more often than I should admit because she might listen to this. Hello, Lane. <laughs> but yeah, there was there was that that's something that was interesting for me. I kind of identified that I could go to the pub and it was no problem to drink until they said you've had too much if they said that and I, I used to have to go and walk around the corner and quite far away from some of the pubs because of smoking grass and it stunk and you know even even really wary walking back in the pub that other people would smell me um smell the weed off my, my breath so yeah it's interesting isn't it it's very interesting yeah so just before we started this podcast we were speaking about like paths to recovery and you rightly pointed out that path is a weird word and I've been thinking about it I'm like you're absolutely right because when you say path it's as if it has a, a starting point and an end point but when it comes to recovery itself you know there's a lot of sort of skipping off other paths joining into others taking a few steps forward taking a few steps back falling down somebody coming over and pulling you up you know it's it's all over the place um, I think what I would say is as it is recovery month you know, you spoke about, you tried a lot of times to get help. And I think that story will resonate with so many people because you do always try. 
sometimes you read or all you need to do is reach out and help and sometimes you do that but the help isn't what you need um, and it can be really actually quite tough to to get the help that you personally need for it being recovery month and if somebody was to listen to this who's maybe feels that their alcohol or drug use is really quite bad and they have sort of said I need I need help now where would they begin where would you sort of suggest for somebody to go to just because you spoke a lot about it was really peer support with you helped put you on the right path and, and getting to hear people's stories because I think there's that trust isn't there that if this person that's helping you has been through it all as well you can trust them so you know sort of just where where could somebody begin so like you say I mean I I picked up a helpline I just googled that was my starting point. I mean, prior to that, I'd gone to my doctor and I would always recommend people go to their doctor. If, you, if you've not done that yet, if you've not engaged with NHS, because there's a lot of guys I do support and I'm like, you know, through fellowships now and, and through other means and perhaps have relapsed and they're back on the phone to me and I'm going, have you spoke to your doctor? And like, no. So there's a real, I, I, I always like, maybe the NHS and your local doctor doesn't quite get it right or your local addiction service hasn't sorted sort you out in the past but you need to be engaging with them because if you want to get to a point you know for example if you do need rehab you're going to have to have a, a decent relationship with your drug worker for that to be any kind of an opp opportunity for you unless you're you're in a situation where I found myself where I had to try and find the money privately to, to fund that but I think there's such a big discussion in Scotland about recognising that I mean, everybody I know, I mean, not everybody, but the vast majority of people I know that, that are in recovery and work in recovery all went to rehab. Covering in the community is very possible as well, but I, I'm a big believer that rehabs work and they, and sometimes they don't work the first time. Some people need them again and again and again, um, just in the same way that other illnesses, some people, they, they come back, that they need to get treatment again and again and again. So... Yeah, I would start. I would. I would start by finding out what's available to your local area. Now, I'm lucky in Glasgow and, a, and, a, and anywhere in the central belt, Edinburgh, any major city, you're going to have pretty. You're going to have recovery options out there. Um, it does get harder in rural areas, and I recognise that, but not at all. It doesn't mean they don't exist. I think one of the, the blessings we've had from COVID is that. Every, there's so many people are online people have got much better access there's lots of funds to help people get access to digital equipment so that people can join meetings but yeah we start with you know, seeing what your local recovery communities are offering if there is one and um, we know the recovery communities are in every part of scotland but they're, 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 they're building them in every part of scotland if they're not already existing so your doctor should be able to recommend that to you your local you know you need to you definitely need to get in touch with your addiction services but i would also look at 12-step fellowship helplines that worked for me it doesn't work for everybody but it's there smart is there as well um that's nationwide as well you know and that's the thing about this we've kind of got into this worldwide way of recovering as well now there's actually lots of meetings i've loved doing meetings online where there's been people from all over the world coming and sharing and and that's been really helpful um and also i've liked as well that some of the stuff that happens with uh, there's been always been a thing for me about borders you know um parts of scotland like you might live in one area and work in another or you you don't you're you're very close to a border area between two local councils and i think what i recognize as well that a lot of recovery communities were really good at just helping out anyone that needed help because of because of COVID. It was like all the all rules are down. We'll just do whatever we can to help you. And I hope that that ethos stays. 
you know, I hope that people go actually it doesn't matter where you're from. Um, this is, we're, we're all we all live in Scotland. We all we all this is all the same NHS. So yeah, start with your your local doctor, local addiction service. Try and see what your recovery communities offer. Look at twelve step. Give it a try. I tried everything and until I found what worked for me, and I had to keep trying. I, it, it's not going to feel right the first time necessarily, and it takes a wee while to get comfortable. Okay, well, thank you so, so much. And what we'll end on is, uh, you obviously work with the Exciting Connecting Families team and Scottish Families. Is there anything coming up that you want to share with anybody? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, well, we've just started. We're, we're just going into week three of our family recovery college. Um, it's great. I, I think, you know, for anyone that's that's out there hearing this for the first time, it's already after just two weeks the people that are participating are, are great. I'm learning so much from everybody that's coming along and sharing their stuff. There's just some lovely things that have been said. And actually, we know that from previous family recovery colleges that the bonds that are made and the support networks that come through that are really, really helpful to families. Just hearing that you're not alone and that they've got a support out there, um, sharing information, sharing techniques. And then obviously through that recovery college, we are, <clears throat> we're trying to educate people. We're trying to give people some of the tools that they need to help support loved ones. We focus a lot on communication. I'm very lucky that I did my craft training recently and and that's been great <clears throat> just to understand a little bit more about, yeah, just about how to communicate better and put ourselves first, like you mentioned as well, for, for families to start to really look out for themselves. So the Family Recovery College has got a lot of that stuff in it, and it's it's worth looking up on our website um, for more information, and we'll be running them again in the next year. So we'll keep running these colleges because they're such a success, and they really are a wonderful place for families to get support. And actually, what we really hope from that is that we're trying to empower people so that You've got the tools to go right. What's happening? What do I need in my local area? And that's where the sort of community development aspect of my job comes in. That we want to try and help you identify what's what's great in your area and what what you can share with other people to help them. Because I think that's a good thing about my personal recovery journey is that I found that by helping other people, it kept me well. And I think that same goes for families. You know, by by then sharing that this is what works for me getting busy organizing a local group in your local area that can keep that's the kind of thing you might just need because it is for me it, I know I needed to keep busy and helping others was a really useful way of, of using my time and so we've got the family recovery college has got all that stuff packed into it so I recommend you check that out and um, we're all I've also recently been involved with my colleague Deborah and Susie in developing a tackling stigma and the power of kindness workshops and um, we did that with Highland ADP and that's been really great and actually we think we're probably going to look at rolling them out a bit wider because you know I've been involved in a lot bit of work around stigma with the drug death task force and Scottish government and it's it's really and, and South Ayrshire ADP as well I've been I've been involved with them and it's it's all great work and actually what we recognize is we need to really put some some workshops in to back all this up because it's great acknowledging that we need to tackle stigma. It's great at helping people look at the language they they use. But actually what we've discovered is that we need to fill that void. And that's why it's the workshop's also about the power of kindness. And it's lovely. It's a lovely, lovely workshop. So I'm, I've really enjoyed that. Our next one's on the 8th of uh, October and unfortunately it mean it's it's almost at capacity now so that's why we're, we're having to run extra ones so that's really good um, I'm just starting to get a bit more involved in um, some of the work around the family recovery initiative fund 
my colleagues have already been beavering away in that stuff. And yeah, that's just a fund to help families try and tap into and support or create or create opportunities for other families in their local area. So that's great and that's exciting. Again, that's the kind of, I mean, there's so much to do. Sometimes it's overwhelming. I'm like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that. And, and I'm full of enthusiasm and, and it's great. You know, we'll get there. Do you know, I, it's, I guess for me, I've just got to be a bit careful and just pace myself because I just, it's so exciting, all the stuff that's happening right now. So much amazing stuff happening. So yeah, I just want to say thank you. My big really big thank you for this i really appreciate it thank you thank you thank you very much thank you for listening if you're worried about someone else's alcohol and drug use you can contact scottish families on 08080 10 10 11 or by email at helpline at uk. we also have web chat and further information on our website www.sfad.org.uk